take a second right now and consider the way you're breathing. Do your shoulders go up and down? Does your stomach move forward? Or do your sides expand? Some of these methods of breathing, which you may not even realize you're doing, are significantly healthier than others. On today's episode, psychiatrist and breathing expert Belisa Vranich, who has taught breathing exercises to police and special forces, gives us a mathematical equation that can help you fill your lungs properly. After that, we talk to senior home editor Roy Berenson about why some tools are more expensive than others, we try to open a bottle of wine with a shoe, and we try to find another way to relax by drinking whiskey aged in a white oak bottle with Brian Fakay, who makes bootlegger bourbon, gin, and vodka for Prohibition Distillery in upstate New York. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. This is the most useful podcast ever, and we are ready for the weekend. Roy Berenson, our senior home editor, who is our now our multi-platform senior home editor, he just came over from his live Facebook Ask Me Anything, is in the uh, in the podcast room. Welcome, Roy. Thanks, Jackie. And uh, and you have a tool that looks super cool. I know you you posted on Instagram the other day, and I saw it, and I was like, what? What is that thing? It's like a, a two-headed. It's like a Greek. Uh, monster. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a lot of fun. Uh, we got a big kick out of it when it when it came in because it's just the design is just so interesting. Well, what is it? Well, it's a it's a tool. It's a cordless drill primarily, or a cordless what people call a cordless drill driver, a battery powered uh, drill that also drives screws. But the interesting thing is, it has this turret at the front. So you push in this button, and that releases the catch, and then you turn the turret, and in one position, it drills. Press the button in again, turn the turret, and it drives. That's crazy. Now, I mean, so it looks like it's like it's got a swiveling head sort of thing, right? right? Yeah, it's I'm like, calling it a turret. That's that that. It, well, yeah, it, it is actually a turret, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, uh, in, if it were a tank, it would be a turret, right? In, in the um, in the machine tool world, uh-huh. like they have big machines, the turret lathes, for example, and they have these gigantic heads that are like multi. They they do different jobs. One machine does different jobs just by turning the head, oh. you know, into position. This is going to be a very non-mechanical uh, m- reference, but uh, it reminds me of those pens with multiple different colors, and you pull the little thing down, and then the the one the one ball ink color comes down. You can you can write in like purple and green. Oh and yeah, blue. I mean actually that's a that's n- uh, not a bad analogy at all. It's it's a it's the perfect analogy for this uh, another. Uh, although uh, less pleasant, uh, lethal analogy is a six-gun where the the magazine rotates oh, right. you know, to a there fresh a fresh round. You know the so-called six-shooter. You know you don't want to play Russian roulette with this thing, or your walls will look terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it would. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of holes. <laughs> um, how many? How many? So this has two. Are there any other things like this on the market right now? Um, no. No. Not 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 of this specific design attribute it's uh it's pretty clever you know i i it's the only one i've seen I'm, i've seen other um takes on this closer to this again the six gun analogy where you have like a, a magazine that rotates oh. and instead of uh, drill drilling normally those are used for driving like you have different sizes of s- Screwdriver oh, screwdrivers on. So okay. as as you rotate, you get a Phillips head, you get a larger Phillips head, you get a small Phillips head, then you get a straight 
you know, whatever. And what's the, what's the company that makes this? Which is uh, this is Works, uh, W O R X. You can look it up. It's available um, online. Uh, you know, you can see it. It's it's a hundred dollar power tool. The most basic level is what you see here. They also make an expanded kit that's more expensive. But this is you know a hundred dollar power tool. It's it's just very compact and handy. That, that seems really handy for me because I feel like I, if I, I guess you could interchange a driver and a, and a drill bit. Yeah, but I, right. uh, being a person who's not quite as mechanically inclined as you are, I feel like I'd be like, oh, clearly this is how you do it. It's right there. I'll just turn it. You know, you don't have to go find your bits and all and that. And that's all the exactly time. right. I mean, even for professionals, uh, that that you know, having the drill bit and the drive bit immediately available is important for your own efficiency. Yeah. And this is about as efficient as you can get. You nothing to pick up. You, you know? saying this was $100 to give me a, a question. I was wondering, what makes what makes tools more expensive? Like, what is it about a tool that makes it more expensive than another tool? Uh, that's a very good question, and it's difficult to answer uh, a lot of things. Um, it's all about cycles. So professional tools of any kind are just more cycle-capable. They They are capable of withstanding the use of a professional. Eight right, more eight often. Hour. And, and manufacturers know this, and they, you know, appropriately torture test the tool. They have various test chambers to ensure that these heavier, larger, more expensive components that they put in, the motor, the switch, how the battery mounts, the chuck, you know, that has to stand up to cold weather hot weather, wet weather, they tumble, DeWalt, for example, tumbles its drills in a concrete mixer. Oh, that's great. They just, they just <laughs> I tumble bet that's, it. I bet that's loud. It's extremely loud. Have uh, you seen this? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, Milwaukee Electric Tool Company has a room they call the loud room, <laughs> and they just take tools in there, and they just run them until they self-destruct. One of their, their flagship tools is the Milwaukee Super Sawzall. It's a reciprocating saw, and they remove the blade from it, and they just run the sawzall against a hunk of concrete, bu 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 And they, they have electronic means to count how many revolutions, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, until it's beaten into oblivion. You know? And so they, they will pluck a tool off of the assembly line, you know, bring it into the lab, and test it to destruction. Wow. Yeah. And we're not going to do that to this works thing. No, no. We're, we're, you know, we give tools a good hard test, but we don't tumble them in concrete mixers or take them yet. To, to a loud room, <laughs> you know. Uh, yet. But you just got a new office, so maybe maybe we'll turn it into a loud room. Yeah. I mean, that, that office is, is, yeah, it's a strange, you know, for those of you out there, it's a storage room, really. And there's lots of shelves and lots, there's everything in there, shovels and power tools and pliers and stuff on the walls and in closets. Your office yeah. is like a dream garage. Uh, everybody who comes in there pretty much says that. <laughs> it's really gratifying, you know, to see that it, it's so well-received by complete strangers and the staff, you know, <laughs> see all this stuff. Yeah, you need a pool table in there. A pool table would be interesting. Yeah, you know, or one of those and then one mi- of those mini fridges. Yeah, a, a mini fridge would be nice, you know, a fireplace. You know. A fireplace. Yeah, we could do that. I'm sure the Hearst, Hearst building would have no problem with that. Wood stove, run, run, run the pipe out the window, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, if you build it, then you can have it. Okay, well, I'll, ta- I'll take it up with building management. 
So we have with us today Dr. Belisa Vranich, who has written a book called Breathe and is, I believe, a clinical psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. And yep. we also have Katie McDonald here, who is one of our editorial assistants. Hello. And she is going to learn how to breathe better today. I really hope I do, because <laughs> apparently everyone breathes wrong. Everyone breathes wrong. I mean, it's just few and far between. When I find somebody who breathes right, it's just, it's a needle in a haystack. They're a unicorn. Uh-huh. Who, what kind of people usually do breathe right? So, um... Let's see. Swimmers are pretty good, and there's some wrestlers that are pretty good. Huh. Really? Um, I think golfers are the worst. Absolutely oh. the worst. If <laughs> that makes a sense. golfer, uh, folks who do Pilates actually tend to be pretty bad as well. I hate to say that. I'm ah. going to get in trouble, but yes. Because they flex yes. everything all the time? Or Everything's what? very braced. Oh. Um, so they'll oh. exhale. They just never inhale. Um, and golfers, the uh, the whole game of golf doesn't have breath in it at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, just it's like not culturally okay in golf to make noise when you breathe. What is good breathing? Like how do you, what are, are there like, you know, bullet points? And you're like, wow, absolutely. great job. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so most people are vertical breathers. So if you want to take a deep breath right now, take an inhale, you kind of feel like you get a little bit taller. And on the exhale, you feel, ooh, like you come down towards the ground. Like, mm-hmm. so inhale, I'll even do the inflection with my voice. <sighs> inhale all the way up and exhale, you come down. So that's a vertical breather. All okay. right. Horizontal breathers, which most of us are not, sort of span out when they breathe. So if you think of a puffer fish, or pretty much you think about any animal, they never breathe vertically. They always expand in the middle. And that's what you should be doing. You should be expanding in the middle and contracting in the middle because that's where the biggest part of your lungs are. However, things have gotten kind of crazy in the last couple decades. We squeeze our middles and we're left only being able to breathe through the tops of our bodies using our shoulders to inhale and exhale. Your shoulders were never meant to be breathing muscles, and that's why they're uncomfortable. So you go, you get massages, you feel great, you promise yourself you're gonna work on your shoulders, you roll them, the next day you wake up, you feel exactly the same. And it's because you're using your shoulders to pick up your thoracic cavity and breathe. And who do you normally teach to do this? Well, so it was um, SWAT, Homeland Security, DEA, NYPD, LAPD, fighters, a lot of UFC MMA fighters. So that was the group I started with. What brought them to you? What put you on the radar? Endurance and stress relief. So if you think of that group, they'll do anything for better endurance. And part of your endurance is cardio, but there's so much more. Mm -hmm. So you can say, oh, my endurance is good, meaning my cardio is good. But what happens if you can actually get more oxygen into your blood, get it moving through your body faster, and it's not your heart that's working. Mm -hmm. It's your breathing muscles that you need to work out. And then stress, super stressful jobs, super stressful competitions if you're fighting. Many people um, yeah. are trying to kill you. Yeah, I mean, pretty yeah. Much all of us. it is yeah. life or death in those situations. I, yeah, couldn't So that's breathe. a group. Yeah, that's why. So, so, yeah. so you said something about a measuring tape earlier. What, oh, are, what yeah. are you, what are you going to do to poor Katie? Here? So, oh, God. Poor Katie. <laughs> so Katie, come on up. I'm going to actually okay. measure you and I'm going to see how much your diaphragm is moving. Now you kind of have to pretend I didn't tell you how to breathe. So you have to go back to your breathing. Okay. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to measure her around the middle and it's, this is something I give instructions for, um, in the book, and you can follow along now. Measuring tape is around her middle, about two inches underneath your sternum. It's on that bottom rib. So I want you to, just like you did before, big inhale and exhale all the way out. Exhale. So I'm measuring her around the middle to see mm-hmm. how much it moves. And she's going from 27 to 28. Yeah. So what you do is you take the difference between the inhale and the exhale. Okay. That's what the difference is. That's on top. Uh-huh. And then on the bottom is uh, 10% of the exhale, which oh, okay. is 27, 2.7. 
Okay. So what it is Mm -hmm. over what it should be. It should be 2.7, but it's only 1.25. So it should be 10%. So um, the amount your chest moves should be... 10% 10% of, of what it's what it's just like when you're empty. Exactly. Okay. So if you want to do me, do you want to do me and see what my am? Sure. Okay. So we're going to do me. So it was 36 and 32. Okay. So then you've got four, you got four over... 3.2. Wow, you're exactly. you're uh, you're yeah. above 100%. I better be above 100%. <laughs> now, when you take that big belly breath, it's not the sexiest look, okay? You're kind of <laughs> I, I have an assistant in Los Angeles who says Thanksgiving it because that's exactly what you feel like. And that's one of the reasons people don't breathe well is because they don't want to let go of their middle. The belly breath is the introductory breath. It's just to get you started breathing with the lower part of your body. Later on, you can take a breath your middle moves forward a tiny bit, your sides open up, and your back opens up. And then there's the the whole idea that bracing my stomach is going to make me stronger, is going to make my abs stronger, which is mm-hmm. absolutely false. Ooh. Absolutely false. You start breathing with a lower body breath through your belly, and your abs get much stronger. You can pl- outplank anyone like like I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm noticing how much I'm breathing now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. If you are, say you're a runner or something like that, can mm-hmm. you do this while exercising? Like, yes. Or are you going to get a cramp or something? Well, uh, the thing is that that lower body breath counts for a lot more than what's what you take up on top. So th- supposedly, depending if you can take a good, deep, lower body breath, mm-hmm. it counts for six on top. So as an athlete, you want to be taking breaths that are efficient breaths Mm -hmm. because you're using up energy for six breaths on the top, which you could just take one on the bottom. It doesn't take up that much energy to take that breath. It's only one, and it's a more efficient breath. So for an athlete, yes, you want to take a more efficient breath, a lower body breath. And you want to remember that if you're breathing low, it actually helps your center of gravity. So what will happen is if you actually start breathing a lower body breath, and you can do that simply by tilting forwards, letting your belly go, and then exhaling and rolling back. You can't lean on your chair when you do this. You can definitely do it in the car, but don't do it if you start getting dizzy. Stop, obviously. Um, <laughs> don't operate heavy don't machinery. Don't well. machinery. Don't stand a paddleboard. So you want to tip forward and let your belly go. And inhale when you do this. And think about it. You should be inhaling. You're getting bigger, right? Exhale, tip back. In yoga, they'd say tip your tailbone under. Squeeze your belly. Use your abs. Squeeze hard. Inhale, and you can make the breathing noises just so you can get some effect here. Squeeze, lean back. Good. Inhale, belly on your lap. Think Octomom, think Santa Claus. Exhale, squeeze, roll back. Maybe not Octomom. No one wants to think about that. Okay, so if you start doing the breath like that, that's called rock and roll, where you're just tipping your hips and you rock forwards and back. You can actually continue that breath and be on the phone and be thinking and be typing and be doing other things because the breath is coming from your hips. Mm -hmm. So the mechanical aspect of that is you have to change what your cue is to breathe. Right now, your cue to breathe is your shoulders moving up, all right? Change that cue so that when you tip forward, you inhale. (sighs) Exhale, you squeeze, you go back. Inhale and exhale. So think about that. Think about every breath being like that. Or at least once an hour, give two breaths like that huge no it actually huge. feels good like yeah. i don't know if that's it's it's you're not imagining conscious it. of it conscious of it but it just it actually feels, it feels good. better so if you can make every breath like that just even if it's just once in a while huge deep breath your whole system calms down mm-hmm. yeah nice nice job bravo well thank you thanks so for much. having me hey, thank this you this, wonderful. this is the calmest podcast session we've ever had
We're in a new podcast room today in our new side of the office. I'm pretty excited about it. Echo, echo. Yeah, echo. it's new and exciting and very white. Um, and we might get some wine on the walls because Cameron Johnson, our editorial assistant, is here to test out one of our shop notes, which uh, the tagline in the magazine is easy ways to do hard things. Um, and actually, we had a bottle of wine that we were trying to open in the office, which don't ask questions, but uh, we were trying to open a bottle of wine in the office. It was a Tuesday afternoon. What are you going to do? It was noon, and we were trying to open it, and we could not figure out how to do it. And I think, was it you that came up with this strategy? Yes. Did you find it online? Like, how'd you find this? No, I just, um, I think I learned it through my family. I come from a large Italian family, so wine gets opened every 20 to 30 minutes. I think that's where (laughs) I learned it from. And so you've actually seen someone do this? I've actually done it. And, and what, are, what are we doing, just to be clear? You take the bottle of wine and uh, one of your shoes. Uh, it, it can be any shoe. I used... Um, not a high heel, probably. No, that would probably not work for many reasons. <laughs> um, a solid heel. You can use running shoes or anything like that. And you put the bottle into it. You secure it tightly. You put your hand around the bottle so it doesn't come out. And you put your other hand on the shoe and you bang it into a wall until the cork comes unlodged. Wow. And, this, and so does this have to have a real cork? Uh, yes, I believe so. So, so okay, so if you get your wine home from the, the store and it's got a screw top, you're, you're good, and it's got a real cork, you're good. But if it's got one of those fake corks, then that's, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, you can... You can stick it down in. I've done that before, although like it's really messy. Yeah, that's... I mean, if you really got to have it... Um, okay, so let's... Without further ado, um, let's try to piss off the entire office by having you slam that shoe against the wall. I think we decided nothing's on the other side of this wall. Yeah, we're hoping that nothing's on the other side of this wall. So you usually do it on a, on a really hard wall, on a brick wall. Yeah, and when I tried this, when I used to do it in my apartment, I had a brick base outside, and I would go outside and slam it on a wall. And how long would it normally take you to do that? A minute. A minute? Wow. A moment. Um, okay. <laughs> a moment. All right, let's keep going. Maybe we should try it on a brick wall and come back. Um, all right, so we'll be, we'll be back in a moment and see if we can do it on, on a harder wall. So we are just back from outside where Cameron actually succeeded in getting the, the wine bottle, the cork out of the wine bottle. Huzzah. Um, yeah, that was, so what was the difference when you tried it outside? The inside wall was drywall. So it was a hollow wall, and I don't think it was a solid enough structure for it to actually not absorb a lot of the... Force, so it didn't push back into the cork. The outside wall, which we did just out in front of our building, in front of hundreds of people hundreds of walking New Yorkers by, walking home from work with a shoe and a wine bottle, just totally normal. People in were curious, which I, I like about people. People were curious, yet they kept walking and minding their own business because this is Manhattan, where things like this happen all the time. The outside wall was cement, and it only took thirty seconds. Yeah, it was fast. Yeah. I was surprised, and in fact. Now that I know that that's a thing, I mean, I've gotten in so many so many situations where you're like, you're at a rent. It's always at a rental house or a hotel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this would be a really handy thing to do. Um, actually, what's crazy is when we couldn't figure it out the first time, we walked out of the podcasting room, and it turned out our auto editor had uh, one. Of, our, our auto editor had Ezra recently. Dyer. Ezra Dyer had tried it recently uh, on his stairs. He yeah. said, and uh, and it, so that would work, I guess, because you you want something vertical. Yeah. Right. But if you don't want to like. If your house is made of, I don't know, siding. stucco or siding or something, you know, maybe you want to try your concrete, any concrete yeah, stairs or your property. porch front or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but cool. I'm glad it worked. Yeah. You just need a nice solid surface, uh, a shoe, 
and a little bit of elbow grease. We have with us Brian Faquet of Prohibition Craft Distillery. And you said it was in upstate New York? Uh, yeah, we're, we're up in Roscoe, New York. Cool. This is for our testing table this week. We have so much booze in here, and it smells kind of like wood. Um, we have these new, it's called an oak bottle, um, and we thought we'd test them out, and Brian graciously agreed to come and teach us all about whiskey and how oak ages things. Oh, and we also have Cameron Johnson, our editorial assistant here, who uh, was just excited to come play with oak bottles. Yeah, I like whiskey, so, you know, obviously I volunteered. Yeah. Um, so the bottle, basically, it's, uh, they come in three different sizes. It's uh, 750 milliliters, 355 milliliters, and 150 milliliters. Uh, those are at 80, 60, and 40, as you might expect based on size. Um, and then it's 100% American white oak with a medium char on it. And the idea, what they claim, is that because more surface area touches less volume, it ages spirits and wine, they say, 12 times faster than a traditional barrel. Here's what we did yesterday. We gave it 24 hours. We put a cheaper whiskey in there, and we're going to taste it, compare it to a good, a, a better whiskey in the same family with the same mash bill from the same company. Why don't you tell us how, how you think this works or might not work? Well, the way whiskey... Uh, barreling works. You know, they talk about, I just read some of the PR from the company, they're talking about the perfect amount of surface area to liquid. That's the ratio that all of us, all of us distillers in the world search for is a perfect balance of volume of liquid to wood. Traditionally, especially the whiskeys that we're trying, we're using Kentucky bourbons for this experiment because of their consistency and their multiple, multiple lines of spirit that all are aged in 53 gallon barrels to begin with. Kentucky bourbon, or a bourbon in general, has to be made from at least 51% corn in the mash bill. It's distilled to no higher than 160 proof, and it's barreled at no higher than 125 proof in a new charred white oak barrel. Uh, what you're talking about, the char level, the mid-level, mm-hmm. uh, whiskey is actually charred. The barrels are charred on level one through five, one being the lightest, okay. more of toasted through five being a dark char. So most whiskeys, at least even what we use at our distillery, are char level number three. So that's what they're talking about, a mid-char. Oh, okay. So it's going to be an interesting test, but uh, 53 gallons equals four years. If you use a smaller barrel, and that's what we start to see in the craft spirit space, is, you know, at our distillery, we use a five-gallon barrel. We use a 10-gallon barrel, 15, a 25 Frankly, we use anything I can get my hands on to put whiskey in. Mm-hmm. And it's been proven that the smaller the barrel, the more surface area to, to liquid, the faster it ages. So what we'll do is we'll try a couple of things today of not only the ones that are going through this, but we could see something that was aged in a five-gallon barrel for a year is about the time we do it versus something that was aged in a 25-gallon barrel for 21 months. So you can see the same spirit, what a little barrel does versus a big barrel. Okay. So uh, can you explain to me what, uh, what are we going to be tasting here? In, in... I believe this is uh, Brand X, which is a, it was an 80 proof white label. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's an 80 proof uh, Kentucky bourbon um, with a, the same mash bill as the other one we have, which is a higher end whiskey, which is their nine year old. Okay. Um, is 100 proof. So what we'll do is I'm going to water it down a little bit, the 100 proof, because that's a good benchmark because that's a higher end whiskey. The the uh, white label is a beautiful product. It's a four-year-old product. So it's a wonderful product, but it's 80 proof. Something that people don't realize is things that are 80 proof generally go through a chill filtration or they go through some sort of filtration so you can have bottle stability. Um, people don't realize that whiskey, when it's above 92 proof, 
it stays shelf stable in no matter what temperature you put it at. Huh. If you water it down, like mine, for instance, if you water this down to 80 proof and you let it sit for a couple of days, the negative ions, which are called fatty lipids, will actually create a dusty haze in the middle of the bottle. So years ago, whiskey makers realized you gotta actually filter, if you wanna bring it down to 80 proof, you gotta filter all the beautiful fats in it. So, is that a good way to catch your kid if he's sneaking the whiskey and it, filling it, it up with water? Yeah, my dad's liquor cabinet is looks like someone went and put dust in a bottle. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's that's actually how you can do it. And you can see at certain bars that leave whole bottles sitting, you can see when somebody watered something down. That's if, great. Yeah, I, that's a good that's trick. That's a good trick, yeah. So what we'll do, I'm going to take a little bit of water, and I'm going to go through and make a just a lower-proof whiskey. And again... These are going to have the more expensive whiskey is going to have all that fat in it. And what that fat does, it breaks down over time on your palate. You ever get a whiskey when you're drinking it and you're, you're, you can keep tasting it for a few minutes after you took that sip? Mm -hmm. That's generally ones that have the fat still in it. Every time you're trying something, people make a big mistake with drinking bourbon and they just take it right out of the bottle and then they drink it. Watering down a spirit allows you to taste the distiller's imperfection. So when you put water into it at a high proof, if you're drinking something at a high proof, I can't taste the cinnamons, the vanillas, the cocoa, the, you know, all these wonderful flavors that come out of the wood. That's, that's what wood gives it, flavors coming out of that wood that round off and make it taste better over time. Okay. So you taste that, it tastes very, it's like a little light cinnamon, right? A little bit, yeah. So the reason why you water down a hearts, the what you're drinking mm -hmm. right now, the hearts are all those flavors. Is because right at the tail end, when the tails are coming, it starts tasting like brown paper bag. So if you ever take someone's white whiskey and you want to see how good of a cut they made, you can't hide chemical taste, which is the heads. The heads are acetone, acetaldehyde, formaldehyde, and acetate. Um, all those things that you can, you can actually taste, it tastes like chemical. But tails always taste like brown paper. So if you want to see how good a distiller makes their cut, don't be afraid to put water in it because then you could taste all those subtleties. And then you'll taste brown paper and then you're like, if you, if you're, you're not even a real whiskey maker. What are you doing? No, what no, are you doing no. in my house? Everybody has different palates and, they, <laughs> and that's, that's what the beauty of art, artisan distilling is. So now that you tried that, let's go and try this guy. Hmm. Does it taste different? Yeah. It does. Just a little bit, yeah. I can't discern if it tastes better or worse, but it definitely tastes different. Wait, can I, let me, let me yeah. It feels like it has like a smokier flavor. Huh. Right? It does, I think it tastes better. Oh, I, yeah. I, that's I'd so, say so. You put it in, we put it in the oak bottle. But I, I'm not a huge fan of that original oh, right, that's true. control. Should we compare the oak bottle to then to the older one? Yeah, because yeah, I think it gives it, they're all part of the same lineage. So this is a nine-year-old, and you're going to notice right off the bat, when just smell, smell the control, which was B. And you're gonna notice in the in those there's a very sweet smell of caramel. You pick mm -hmm. up a lot of caramels in it, mm -hmm. and it's kind of interesting with this one. It really it smells the same, but like just a little woodier. Yeah, that's that's Which really all it is. I think I know what that was from. <laughs> is it for, is it from keeping it in the wood yeah, bottle for 24 hours? Oh, keeping it in the wood bottle. Yeah. So from a concept of what this is, as a distiller, you know, you leave it in the barrel for the right amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's, that's my job. You know, it's our job as distillers out there is that, you know, we're going through and we're taking something out of barrel because it has the right amount of oak. Mm -hmm. If we intended to put more oak into it, we'd probably go put it into a secondary resting of barrel or we leave it in longer. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of misconception with leaving something in longer with a certain surface area, surface area ratio. 
Sometimes it doesn't make it better. It actually starts to become the tannins from the wood take over and make the whiskey bitter. Hmm. Well, but it, I, my argument, I guess, for this, if I if we're going to argue for it, would be if, like, okay, if you're going to buy this, it, they say basically you can only really use it 50 times before it doesn't really work anymore. So if you're going to buy this, you have to you balance your cost. You know that you if you're if you're, it could make it better if to buy really cheap whiskey, probably. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, then why would you buy it? Why would why wouldn't you just go buy better whiskey? Yeah, for the for the fifty times you right. could go buy. Yeah. But maybe it could be a good gift for like your just turned twenty one college student. You know, like that could maybe be a good market for. Or this. your friend who thinks he knows a lot about whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> who, who wishes he were a whiskey exactly. distiller. Well, so uh, the way we normally end this segment is uh, by having asking everyone if they would buy it. Um, and I think it's clear from this point that I probably would actually buy it despite I might not age whiskey in it because I would just buy better whiskey but I think it'd be a fun experiment I, I own a I own a smoking gun too that will like smoke things that'd you know? be cool yeah so I mean I, I just feel like it's a fun toy to have might as well right um, but what do, what do you think would you actually buy it it's uh, kind of probably not from a standpoint of what it you know to age whiskey in I would not buy it for that but I'd buy it for a gift for cocktails, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And the smoking gun is cool because if you push smoke in and then put your, your Manhattan in, you could have a really cool smoked Manhattan. Oh, brilliant. Cool. I'm, t- I'm taking when he's home. Do that. <laughs> uh, and then I'll bring it back. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. What, what about you, Cameron? What do you think? I would definitely get it as a gift for somebody else. But for myself, I'm not much of an experimenter. And if it's not actually going to get me, uh, you know, angel's envy, for ten dollars, I'm not gonna. I'm right. not gonna bother it's not gonna with be it. any value added. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, Brian. I feel like I've learned. We've learned a ton. Thank you for having yeah. me. Let's drink more. Let's do that. <laughs> That's our show. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dylan. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor in chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about breathing better, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. You can also check out our sister podcast, How Your World Works. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. And now-